Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have George Freeney on the show. So George is one of those people who you can get lost in a conversation with and this podcast was absolutely no exception as we visited more rabbit holes than the average golf course. So a little bit about George. George is an experienced entrepreneur who is passionate and curious about how rapidly accelerating technology combined with changing human behavior creates challenges and opportunities for people, businesses and governments. George is fascinated with the idea life cycle and the best way to generate worthwhile ideas. Quickly assess if they're worth testing and validating and if they're worth launching. In 2007, he helped found Contigo, a market-leading mobile travel technology platform which was sold in 2013. In 2012, he co-founded Boodle to solve complex problems for the physical retail business. George led the company from initial idea through five rounds of fundraising, securing strategic customers and partnerships, multiple strategy and product pivots, and then finally the decision to stop pursuing the mission by liquidating in 2018. Today, George is now founding partner of 11.2, a boutique advisory and technology lab focused on helping people, businesses and government validate worthwhile ideas and a co-founder and executive of Director of Space Machines, an Australian space transport and logistics provider. And on top of this, he's a member of the Flinders University Governing Council Audit and Risk Committee. Previously, George has also held board positions with the South Australian Government Entrepreneurship Advisory Board and was Director of RAA and member of the Investment Committee. In this episode, George and I touch on his journey to where he finds himself today, from studying chemical engineering to unpacking his experiences through his entrepreneurial exploits, to what does the startup mindset look like and its important in uncovering and validating ideas. George's core philosophy is those that are able are obligated to do, and his belief that uncovering ideas that are worthwhile is an art. We also spend a lot of time talking about the startup world and the decision that all entrepreneurs fear, the idea of closing down or not pursuing the business. George shared with us the thought process he went through and how he came to make the tough decision of liquidating and what was failing the right way and all the lessons he took away from this experience. So if you love the episode, which I'm sure you will, be sure to hit subscribe button and check us out at synergyiq.com.au and synergyiq on all the social media outlets. Cheers. Welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. Today, we have a very, very great man by the name of George Freeney on the show, founding partner of 11.2, which is a boutique advisor in technology lab helping businesses and government validate worthwhile ideas, and also the co-founder of Space Machines and in in space transportation uh, business. How are you, George? I'm really very well and delighted to be here. It's uh, it's a great privilege to come and have a chat about this. I'm really looking forward to it. 
So you're you're uh, you, we've had a few chats and we've talked about how much of a people collector. You're a bit of an anomalous character as well, like a little bit of left of center, which I absolutely love about you. So I want to start off with a slightly different question. Sure. Who is Phil Boyle, and what influence did he have on you in your life? Phil Boyle. No, Bill oh, Doyle. Bill, oh, Bill, Bill Doyle. Doyle. Oh, did I write them wrong? Bill, down? Yeah, Bill no, Boyle. No, but we can, it doesn't matter. Well, it's good. Go. Bill Doyle. Well, this, <laughs> this is Doyle. a good question. It actually came up. Where did it come up? Oh, I'm on a governing council for Highgate Primary School, and yeah. we had to we had to talk about the most influential teacher in our experience at school. Yeah. And Bill Doyle is the man that really changed my life in so many ways. So, you know, he was my year 11 geography teacher and my year 12 geography teacher. Brilliant. And, you know, I reckon up until he taught me in year 11 how to learn, I just was cruising, right? So, and his philosophy on this was really simple. Take every chapter of every subject and summarize it onto one single page, right? Oh, wow. So, and it's like literally, and he's like, George, if you do that, if you can – Summarize a chapter on a page, it means you understand the chapter. Yeah. The process of summarizing on a page means it'll be easy. And then when it comes to end of year, you've only got a little bit to learn, right? Yeah. You've just got to go through each page. And it's and a way it, of uh, explaining the complex in a simple form. Isn't it, complex really? in a simple form. So I did that in year 11. I did it for every That's subject amazing. in year 12. I topped the state in geography. So there it worked. <laughs> it well genuinely done. worked. Um, I didn't do much study in year 12 because I just had it all summarized on a page. And then I did it all through uni, like four years of chemical engineering degree. I summarized everything on a page. And then I never really thought about this again. And then in my business, 11.2, we do these things called placemats where we summarize really complex strategic problems or ideas on a single page. And so for years now, I've been building this capability. And I was sitting with the CEO of the RAA this morning taking him through two one-pages. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. one page about something and one page about something else. He's like, George, this is such an easy way to understand a really complex topic. And I'd never reflected until a few weeks ago on the impact that Bill had had. I'd always, yeah. I loved him. Like I loved the man. He was yeah, my favourite yeah. teacher. But I hadn't realised how it infiltrated into how I actually execute nearly everything I do today. Like what I do, a complex problem, idea summarizing on a page isn't that amazing we've had this conversation with a few people on the show before about how the power of your words and can how, how much impact there could be right mm. on on one like bill <laughs> i'm going to say phil again bill is he probably doesn't even know that he he told you that and then that, that's had an impact on him so and on it's, you. it's a shame right so you know he unfortunately died of mesophilioma not oh. so long after i finished school and oh, I, yeah. I did write him a letter i remember i wrote him a letter when he was sick and mm. just explaining how much impact it had on my life yeah. and how much i was grateful for that but i never explained to him the one page thing yeah i'd never really contextualized yeah, and thought about yeah. actually how important that was I would love to be able to tell him that yeah. because he had such a profound impact, I think, on the way my brain works. It's amazing that you as a how old, I mean, 15, 16-year-old at the time could actually did it, right? Because it's quite a difficult process. So your brain must work in a, in yeah, a way. Yeah, I, I think it fitted with me, right? Like yeah. it just it, it, it fitted. And it, you talked about the importance of language. The process of summarising something on a page just makes you be really precise and efficient with the words that you use. Right? Mm. You've got no space. So you've got to be, you've got to think it through properly. And I think, you know, I find a lot of people hand up big doc, long documents, you know, in, and it's like, it's just complex. There's so much room for interpretation error. But if you summarize it really well, it's precise. Do you not get, uh, I'm not worried, probably not the right word. Do you, do you get concerned that 
you're going to miss information. Like, no. there's, oh, I should know that. I should know that. No, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't. I think you get really, you get really focused on the information that's important mm. because I think if you put too much in, it distracts from what's important. So it makes you just like focused on like what's yeah. really critical. And I, it's interesting because I have an analogy. I've been involved in the startup world for a long, long time since 2006. A startup pitch deck is very similar to a one pager. Yeah, it's just yeah. spread out over. 12 pages but it's the same sort of clarity of articulation of something which is nebulous and complex right so it's like i think it works really well for things that don't exist like if you're trying to explain something that doesn't exist you've got to be really precise and accurate with how you articulate it do you take the mentality of explaining it like you're explaining to a six-year-old child is that kind of well well i mean that's the some six-year-old child might not work for some of the complex stuff that you work on but it's the same principle right someone should someone should be able to pick up that document and have very few questions yeah wow that's an art in itself i think it's my art yeah <laughs> i genuinely think that like that is what i love it like i take enormous pride in it i spend hours lining up every pixel and every color and making it like literally and i look at it and go, oh i really like that <laughs> <laughs> like i'm really proud of that <laughs> yeah that's brilliant do you pass that information on like are you obviously now with this podcast we're talking you know if you there's one thing that you can do Take the one chapter, bring it to one page. Is that something that you talked about your kids? Or yeah, I talk, mate, I talk to my team about yeah, it. I talk yeah. to my kids about it. Like my, my, my nine-year-old son, um, he did the Oliphant Science Awards and oh, yeah. he did his first one-pager. He did a poster. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, son. I'm Proud dad moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was really hard though because I really wanted to get in and like, yeah. <laughs> fix it. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't perfect but 80-20 rule, we'll get there. That's I'm fine. Like, right, I'm going to let you experience that. It was really – but it was a proud dad moment. I was like, yes, dad. <laughs> yes, well done. Excellent. How many kids you got? I've got three kids, Jack, nine, Angus, seven, and Emily, five. Well done. Mm. Excellent. It's fun time. Fun it is age. fun times. My kids are similar age, so uh, I know exactly the world you're going through. So you seem to be a successful academic, obviously, topping the state. Then you got into engineering. Mm. So you went from a geography, you know, being all things great at geography. Why did you then decide to... Go into engineering. Well, at school I did Mass 1, Mass 2, Physics, Chem, Geography. Okay. Didn't like English at all. Yeah. Which is quite ironic because now I spend a lot of time trying to write yeah. and understand things. But yeah. And literally I remember this really clearly though. Like, well, George, you're pretty smart. Like you're doing well at school. You know, you could be a doctor or an engineer. I'm like, don't want to be a doctor, yeah. engineer. engineer. They're like, well, what sort of engineering do you want to do? And they publish the percentage of men and women in each engineering discipline. And I was like. Chemical engineering, highest proportion of women, I'll do that. Yeah, okay. And that was that was the sum total of my strategic decision-making. <laughs> why, why did you just – what was your thought process around? Oh, look, I, I quite liked the idea that engineers build things. Yeah, like, so, yeah. like, I, I sort of always sort of had this bent towards, well, engineers make things, yeah. build things, are creating things that are of the future. Yeah. So, you know, I was – but I look back, I was never really that thoughtful or strategic about these things mm. back. It's not like I want to be this. You like, just, I was just yeah. like, engineers build things, I'll do that. Yeah, okay. Gut feel sort of Gut stuff. Gut feel, yeah. Yeah. Never worked a day as an engineer. <laughs> yeah, because you, you finished mm. your, your chem engineering and then got into startup world. Is so that- I, I, it's a really interesting – you, know, I you, did, you had a nightclub at one point, didn't I you? I did have a nightclub. Just, all right, let's, how did we get into this world? <laughs> so look, I'll go back to engineering because we'll get into that world. Like, so I was doing a chemical engineering degree. Yeah. I started engineering when I was 17. So I was yeah. 17-year-olds at uni doing chemical engineering, 40 contact hours a week. It was busy mm. and I wasn't that interested in it, to be honest. Like I was just doing a great group of friends, you know, get to third year. And I sort of in that period I was sort of I would describe as a bit of like 
not a fascist, but I didn't really think about how the world worked. I was just like mining, let's go mining, let's dig stuff up. My family was in the mining industry and I was like, yeah. well, I never really thought about how the world worked contextually, you know, the indigenous world. And I got into uni one day in third year and I'd been out late the night before I was the last one into class and we had to pick our research projects. And I picked one about um, Eddie Marbo. Oh, yes. So he was the last one left. So I was forced to do a research project about Eddie. I'm like, this has got nothing to do with engineering. So you didn't pick the Eddie, no, you were no, told that. I was, that was the last yeah. one. So I was late. That was the last one. I was like, <laughs> so, oh, right. I've got, to, I've got to do a project about indigenous history and Eddie Marbo. You probably jagged it in, in the end. Didn't you? It was the best thing yeah, I ever did. It's amazing. Yeah. And that was a sliding door moment for me because it made me understand what had happened mm. in terms of how white settlers had come here and mm. they defined terra nullius and that gave them international legal rights to try and take the land. And I was like, this is just so wrong. Mm. Like, and I went, shifted from- How can you treat a human being? Yeah, I was like, this human is, beings this how way, can yeah. the system work in a way that enables that to happen? It was mm. only 150 years ago. So I learned there that what Eddie Marbo did and the, you know, the native title laws and I became really interested in it. And I was like, sort of made my mind, I do not want to be a chemical engineer. Mm. I do not want to be involved in extracting oil and mining and all of that. And I was pretty lost and I just finished uni and started a T-shirt business and then got into – What T-shirts? Just, you know, just hyper-coloured T-shirts. Oh, yeah. just like, let's buy some T-shirts and sell them. Like, yeah. you know, started, you know, you know, ran some dance parties and, you know, was involved in running a nightclub on Pineley Street and well, really yeah. was just having a whole lot of fun. <laughs> That's brilliant. Mm. And then Boodle came along? No, man, that's a long way. So that's, that's a long, a long way. way. So it, it, that was, you know, what? so that's 1996 I finished uni and I was just cruising around, didn't really do anything seriously for quite some time. Then I went up to Sydney in 2000 and was again just fucking around really, just, yeah. just having basically having fun doing little bits of work, trying yeah. to start businesses, nothing too serious. Yeah. And I – um. My mum was a bit worried about me, I think. <laughs> and she was on is the- she still? Or is no. she no? <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, mate, just, I digress for a second. We did, we did a group strategy session, like a team culture yeah. session last week. The consistent theme was George is a bit crazy. <laughs> so it really came out. So I do think I was a bit crazy. But my mum was on the board of Family Business Australia. Yeah. And she was on the board with Stephen Marshall, who's the, now the Premier. Yeah. And I sat next to him at a conference in Bond up on the Gold Coast and we had a chat, got along well, and I was like, oh, he's an interesting dude. Like, I've met someone like that before. I'm like, oh, that, that, that sounds pretty cool. Six months later, I sat next to him on a plane just randomly and he says, oh, George, why don't you come and work at Marshall Furniture with me in Adelaide? I'm like, okay. You know, my girlfriend was in Adelaide. I was in Sydney. I'm like, yeah, I'll move back to Adelaide. And that sounds like a great plan. Yeah. So I, I started working for Marshall Furniture in 2001 um, as a business analyst, optimizing yeah. supply chain in the in the factory, and which was nothing to do with anything I'd ever learned. Yeah. Um, and then through over a few years, progressed through to being the general manager of the commercial division, helped Stephen with the uh, transaction to sell it to Steinhoff. And I was like, wow, this business stuff's cool, man. Like I, I really sort of got a flavor for it. Yeah. And then in 2003, I went and worked for Yasser Shahin up at Peregrine Corporation yep. on special projects. And I was like, wow, man, this is like, Cool. This is about, that's the first time I got exposed to the power of data and technology. Mm. We were using sophisticated data and I met a guy called Jeff Rorsheim when I was there who was a provider to, um, through his business SDM, strategic data management, was providing services to Yasser and got to know that. I was like, wow, this stuff's really cool. Yeah. And in 2006, I was like, oh, man, there's not enough going on in Adelaide. I need to do something more, yeah. more adventurous. So I moved back to Sydney and it was at that point that I met a Danish guy called Johnny Torson. 
um, when I was doing some management consulting work and he was a crazy Danish guy. And he's like, 2006, he's like, George, I've got this idea. I've got this idea for this tech company where we like, we take itinerary data. And this is before mobile, this is before smartphones. We take itinerary data and we build a rules engine and it sends automated text messages to people about their travel plans and disruptions. And we can track where they are and we can manage risk and procurement for big companies. Like, I like you. Yeah. So we, I wrote him a small, me and my business partner, wrote him a small check. And uh, I sort of became like an early investor in this Danish travel tech startup. Brilliant. And I was like, I've never made an investment in my life. I'm like, I just like this guy. And so then I ended up starting a company in Australia um, to distribute that product in the Asia Pacific region. And from 2006 to 2012, we grew that business and ended up selling it to a company called Concur um, in 2012, which is an amazing learning experience. Oh, without doubt. Um, And did you? Do right out of it? We made some money, but yeah. nowhere near as much as we should. Because, okay. And I learned some really valuable lessons, right? Like I was just – all I thought about was product, product, product. Like how do we solve the problems for our customers' product? Yeah. And I didn't think about the corporate structure, the investors. The, I didn't think about that layer. Yeah. And they had bought some investors in from Finland that were not that well aligned to what we were doing. So we were trying – me and Johnny were like, just go, go, go. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, the world's taking off. Like it's 2010. There's money everywhere. Like let's build this and build it big. And we were talking to Silicon Valley VCs and they were interested in investing, but the Finnish investors didn't want us to do that. And unfortunately, we massively sub-optimized the opportunity that the product represented Mm. and ended up selling it for, I think, like a fifth of what we should have. So we made some money, but not great money. But I got literally caught the bug of how cool is this? You can have an idea, build some tech, help customers, do do amazing things. Solve problems, right? So then in 2012, we had this idea. Well, I had this idea that it would be really cool to get a message on your phone when you were walking past a physical shop that sold the product you wanted to buy. So it was like a smart shopping list. Yeah. Just let you know when you were near a physical shop that sold Is that the, the world before spam? Like, is that because that would annoy the shit out of me? <laughs> no, 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 but it's only something you want. So it's like, oh, okay. so like it's on your list, right? Oh, oh, so it's like, right. I, put, like, I want some RM Williams boots. And then oh, when yeah. I'm walking past the RM Williams shop, hey, George, remember you want some RM Williams oh, yeah, boots? Yeah, yeah. It's like, that's interesting. Turn left here. Yeah. So Brilliant. I was like, that's interesting. Yeah. So I started researching, we were in, in the process of selling the other company and I was like, this looks interesting and started building up a thesis around how do you help shoppers find stuff in physical stores. And we went and started this thing, we called it Olisto before we got the branding people involved mm. and then it became Caboodle but then there were some trademark infringement issues and it became the, Boodle. Yeah, and, you know, we raised a lot of money in 2012 on the back of a PowerPoint deck. So put together a team, raised $2.5 million without a product. It was just a PowerPoint deck. How do you go about that? Yeah, this is – I don't know, man. I was just like, let's do it. So is it? do you think this, your background, working with Deshaines, working with Marshall, working with Rorschheim, all these – I think all of them contribute yeah. to a belief, but I think I have a core fundamental philosophy that you just imagine the future and go and start doing it. Yeah. Right? Like, so, so I have people ve- saw you as a visionary. Almost. I have very little fear of yeah. that not working. And yeah. I'm very little fear of talking to people and asking them. So in that sort of window, I just, you, you have to have so many conversations to explain something that doesn't exist. Mm, so, yeah. you know, and I've spent so much time now explaining things that don't exist. So we raised a lot of money. We got like the, the Packers involved. We got, you know, UBS Bank, you know, the CEO of UBS Bank was involved. Um, it was a really great group of people. And How do you go about connecting with these people? Um, I collect people. Yeah, <laughs> yes, great. The people collect the things. So, you know, my oldest friend from Adelaide's best friend from 
school was in Sydney. He had a great network and was friends with a with he was really good friends uh, with a lady called Erica Packer, James Packer's ex wife. Yeah, yeah. We met her. We ta- talked about what we're doing. She liked it. I talked to James. He was like, "Man, yeah, sounds interesting," you know. And so just these conversations. Right? So you just follow the yeah. And the, I think there's a. I was talking to my team about it this week. It's like you have to just have vulnerable, open, genuine conversations yeah, with people, right? So it's like my view is when I'm collecting, like talking to people, I'm just, this is me. This is what I believe. This is how I see the future. I've got reasonably good at articulating things quickly. 100%. And I think it's a combination of, oh, wow, you've got a nice vision of the future. Might be a bit crazy. Yeah. You've got a lot of passion and you seem to be really honest and vulnerable and transparent about it. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep talking. I'm interested. Yeah. Yeah. So Boodle – we started so, so, so be a good person, right? That's yeah. open and honest. It's yeah. really, you know. Yeah. And I, I think, yes, 100%. Be open and honest and transparent. And yeah. like, don't try and play games with this stuff. Yeah, like, correct. Because if you're trying to raise money for business, open open the books, yeah? Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, and there's a little thing. I can't help it. I'm a mad Port Adelaide fan. Yeah. I'm still hurting <laughs> from a few. I won't hold you there. I'm still hurting from a few weeks ago. <laughs> you won the, you got the Brownlow. <laughs> you got a Brownlow, though. which yeah. is a small consolation yeah, prize. Yeah. Ollie One's an amazing human being. But there is a principle in their creed, like the the Port Adelaide creed that I really, really love. And it's like there can only be honour and defeat Mm. when all of human endeavour is exhausted. And I think whenever you're doing something that is highly likely to not work or it's really risky and hard, which most startup investors, the only thing I can promise to someone, I can't promise you I'm going to give you a return on your investment. Mm. That promise is disingenuous. Mm. I can promise you that I will do everything in my power to use my efforts in the best way possible to pursue what I've promised you that I'll try and pursue. Yeah. And if you do that and don't do anything illegal or wrong, then I think that's successful. If you're lucky and fortunate enough to actually get a business up and running, and you know, most startups don't work. Like the vast majority of them don't work. Mm. If you're fortunate enough to get one up and running and provide investment returns, brilliant. But if you if it doesn't work, make sure it doesn't work in the right way. And that is you do everything, you have integrity, you treat everyone with respect, you don't break the law and you give it everything in the right way to succeed. So I want to touch on that because I think it's an important point. So Boodle, obviously you, you've closed the doors on Boodle, you liquidated and, 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 and you know decided to finish up with that project. However, if in my head I'm thinking, well, if George, if he'd done it incorrectly, right, if he failed incorrectly, he pissed people off, he, he stole their money, ran with it, well, I do all the above, then you wouldn't be in where you are today, no. right? You, you, so you've actually – is there a right – I think what I'm asking is, is there a right way to fail? Yes. And I, and I think there's, a, there's an interesting conversation going on in some parts of the sort of startup. I think – who was talking about it? About the word failure. Was it Simon Sinek? I'm not sure if it was – maybe it was Simon Sinek, but they were talking about – that the word failure has got too much nuance in it, right? So yeah. it's like it's almost like falling over is a better analogy for it. Mm. Like you fall over, you get back up, you keep going. Mm. Failing sort of people tend to think you've done something wrong yeah. in the word failure. Yeah. Well, but that, you ha- in the, their perception. Yes. So it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> Boodle was a really interesting journey for yeah. me because I think that I'm a far better human being as a result of it and, you know, I'm proud of me and the team that was involved for the fact that the investors we got involved were, uh, as many of them are good friends of mine and involved in things I'm doing for the future. Yeah, great. 
Um, and that's because we did it the right way. We treated them with respect. We put all of our endeavour into making it work well. We never broke the law. We paid everyone their money. No one ever, like no employees didn't get paid. No suppliers didn't get paid. The tax office didn't, you know, yeah. everyone got what they were meant to get. Brilliant. And I think that's a really important message. I think Jim Wally, the first chief entrepreneur in South Australia, talked a lot about it was, you know, you've, you've got to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You've got to fail the right way. And if mm-hmm. you do that, but if you're a bad person and you break the law and you treat people poorly, go away. Yeah. You've got nothing for you. Yeah. And you, you're really going to get caught out. It's gonna, everything's going to yep. catch up, isn't it? Yep. I agree. How does that decision – how do you come to the decision of saying, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to pursue this? Because like, it's a tough gig. It's your baby. It's working yep. on it. You can, you, you know, if you're a visionary, you can almost see it. You can almost feel it, taste it, all the above. But then – you know, you make that decision. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get into your head in that space. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a difficult decision to make, right? And I think I can't remember. There's a there's a term about like increasing, like inc- like the the challenge of increasing conviction, right? Like, so you spend time and money, your time, your money, other people's money. You've got employees, customers, investors. You've got all these people that have bought into your vision and the work you've done. You've spent thousands of hours on it. Like making the decision to stop is really hard, yeah. right? But I think as an entrepreneur or a startup founder, you know, you call it pivot or persevere. You know, I call it like, do you, like you have to be asking yourself every day, do you continue to pursue this idea with the resources, which isn't always time and money, available to you? So, you know, I remember thinking that through, do we stop? You know, and it was really difficult. We, we formed the view that to launch that business, we needed a large amount of capital because – we were doing something that was against trend. And, and I remember I, I had a chat with um, a guy called Joe Schoendorf who was a, one of the first Axel venture partners, so one mm. of the oldest VC firms in the Valley. He's yeah. been there since Hewlett-Packard. Mm. Right? So at the beginning, and he said to me at a conference, he's like, look, George, you're right, but you're going against the online trend, and when you go against the trend, you need lots of capital. Mm. So it's like as a principle, if you're going against trend, the company's going to need lots of capital to get yeah. su- success. And so we formed the view we needed $50 million to properly go from where we were at Boodle, which was in 2016, to get it launched. And so we started pursuing that and we, we thought we had a deal done to have $10 million and then a $40 million sort of next payment. Yeah. And we were pretty happy about that. We were like drinking champagne, yeah, yeah. like this deal's in place. Yeah. That deal didn't eventuate. And the questions that we started asking ourselves as a board, and I had a great board, very supportive and very sophisticated, we were like, well, is it ethical? And I had people offering me million dollars, two million. I could have taken another million or yeah. two million dollars. And the question that we got to was that: is it ethical to take two million dollars when we know we need much more mm. to get this up? Because basically, what you're doing is saying take a small amount to give us a little bit more time to find a big amount. But if you can't find the big amount, that little amount is going to disappear. Mm. So we formed the view that it was not appropriate mm. to take a small amount of money, and we couldn't find a big amount of money. So we had to make the decision to shut it down, um, which means, you know, lay off staff. You know, you know, how them. many staff did you have at the time? Oh, there's probably about 14 at that yeah. point in time. Um, you got to tell the investors that it's done, we're, we're, we're finished. And, and that's hard, man. Like then you end up spending hundreds and hundreds of hours of work to finish it properly mm. where you're not getting paid for. Yeah, so it's a difficult exercise. Yeah. Is that gut wrenching feeling that's going through my body right now? Where <laughs> just knowing that, because it's, well, I don't know, for me, it might be the approval thing where I'm just, uh, I don't want to, 
you obviously want to do the best for everyone and you don't want to let people down. Did you mm. have that feeling sort of run through your mind? Yeah, or, or, you had but, a lot But in the same token, you're making the right decision, right? Yeah, and I think sometimes the right decision is painful. Mm. So, you know, it's the right decision to make. You just got to deal with the pain. I think, And I think there's a, you know, it, what it teaches you, like reflecting on it now, it's 2021, that was 2017. Mm. So we were in Sydney at the time in early 2018. My wife and I and the three young kids moved back to Adelaide and she's also from Adelaide. Um Coming back here was really hard. Like my identity in some ways had been Boodle. Mm. I was George from Boodle for five years, yeah. man. Some of my friends' kids called me Boodle George. <laughs> <laughs> so like your identity is sort of wrapped up in the pursuit of that vision and mission. Yeah. And you can get really – it was gut-wrenching, man. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Like, yeah. what am I, like what's my next yeah. um, after that? But looking back on it, you look at it and go, I learned so much from that. Like, mm. And what you learn is – you can make really hard decisions that are really painful and you can feel really shit and horrible about it all, but you recover. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think unless you go through that, you don't understand that you can fail, like fail, use the word, you can fail and then you can get back up and life's okay. And yeah. Things keep going on. There's, there's pain and there's pain. As long as you've kept your integrity throughout. Kept, the kept my integrity. I think the mistake that I probably made and, you know, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, this is a mistake that I regret was that I, I put too much energy into that at the cost of my family, you know, mm. and that – that is a, a trap where you allow the startup to in, intrude on what is family time and family dynamic. And, you know, I, my wife, would, you know, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying it, but she, she probably experienced a bit of pain about that. We had young kids. I was jumping on planes when kids were young. And, you know, I feel a regret about the impact that that had on the family at that point. Yeah. I Yeah, I hear you loud and clear with that. It, for me, it is always... How do you do both, right? How do you how do you yeah. how do you be a visionary yeah. and be a family person in the same I'm doing it a lot better now yeah. than I was. So I sort of made a, I made a principle for myself after that that I don't want to be thinking about work when I'm hanging out with my kids. Yeah. So it's like I really have tried to go, there is family time and then there is work time. Yeah. And I've really tried hard to separate them yeah and um, when you just put the phone away or like how, yeah how do you manage that because so, i think that is a difficult situation for most people in this position yeah so my my operating model is like in the morning you know you've got some time with the kids don't don't get you other than checking my calendar to see what i've got on for the day yeah. which is sort of essential yeah. i put the phone away until i either leave or they've dropped at school and yeah. in the evenings when i get home I try really, really hard. I'm not perfect at it, never, but I try really hard. I put my take my watch off, take my phone, oh, yeah. I put it in the office, I put my watch on charge, mm-hmm. put my phone on charge. And I try not to think about any of that until the kids are asleep. Yeah. And then, you know, bring the tools back out and start doing yeah. a bit more work. Do you try to be a husband when the kids go to sleep? Because like, yeah, this is the—I mean, this is for me. Because I always say, yeah, when kids go to bed, I'll pull out the laptop and go back to work. Well, like, I think it's important. Some nights you've just got to hang out in the couch, have a glass of wine yeah, with wife. Yeah. You know, that's probably I, I can improve on that one. Yeah, <laughs> there's some work to be I done. We there. all can. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, there's, I'm grappling with this every single day. How do you manage your time during the day? I'm really interested in. Um, you're obviously a very busy man. You're in a few boards. You're in councils of Flinders Uni, all the above. Of two, two founder of two startups. How do you, how do you compartmentalize a the startup world? So I've got one startup here. I've got another startup here. I'm on this board over here, and then still deliver with all the distractions that could potentially yeah. uh, occur during the day. 
<laughs> well, I had a great one this morning. I was sitting down having a meeting and I got a call from the school. Uh, your son's fallen over and it looks like he's fractured his ribs. Yeah, My wife's an anaesthetist, so she's in surgery, yeah. can't walk. So I'm sort of on call to provide that sort of flexibility to deal with those sort of life surprises. Yeah. Um, you just got to get really effective with your time. So you just, I think, and the older I get, the more I become really disciplined about what I'm prepared to put my time into. Mm. And I think the the learnings out of two, you know, like 2006 to 2017, I was just literally in execution startup mode, like probably obsessed with it. Yeah. Um, now I'm trying to be a little bit more abstracted away from the day-to-day execution. So in 11.2, I'm the founding partner, like it's emerged from thinking that me and my business partner, Raj, who worked with me at Boodle, had. But now we've got a fantastic team, like a guy called Mark Ogden's the managing partner. He's mm. very sensible. You know, he's very good at operational activity. Yeah. So we're trying to build a team there where the role that I play is not, you know, driving day-to-day everything activity. I mean, I want to be at the point where I'm an owner, a director, and I get involved in coming up with ideas and work with our, with our really important Strategic customers. Thinking. Yeah. And with Space Machines Company, that, co- that company actually came out of 11.2. So 11.2 primary business is to uncover ideas and validate them. Yeah. So we started validating an idea for a space tug or they call them orbital transfer vehicles in 2019 and we built our conviction that that made sense and then decided, well, we'll actually roll that out of 11.2 and create a new entity for it mm. that my business partner Raj is the CEO of. And my, my strategy with that is to build a team that doesn't need me on a day-to-day basis mm, okay. um, because otherwise it would be too difficult to juggle all of these yeah. balls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the space orbiting thing, can we just touch on that? And I want to touch on 11.2 as well, but what are you doing there? Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you're obviously so forward-thinking. What are you, What's problem are you solving? So, with? look, you know, we love ideas. Like, And yeah. people say, I am probably a bit crazy. Yeah, like, yeah. And I, the other thing on that timing – I think that I think that having lots of things to do suits my brain because yeah. it's really hard for me to focus on things for too long yeah. unless I really need to. So having lots of things to do actually suits my brain because I like to just jump into things and then jump into something else yeah. and it sort of scratches the itch of how my brain works. Space Machines Company started with my business partner, Raj, ringing me up in October 2018 saying, I think we should build an in-space autonomous manufacturing capability for tiny satellites so that you can configure a payload like and a payload is what a satellite does. Configure what you want the satellite to do on a laptop, press a button, and have it jump out the side of a machine in space a little bit later. Um, so th- that to me sounded amazing. I was like, yeah, of course. You know, at some point in the future, there will be these <laughs> ability to just you know have auto- autonomously manufactured satellites pop out of space. It's like a three D printer up in yeah, space. Yeah, it's like a three yeah. D printer, autonomous manufacturing facility on orbit. You know, flying around, pushing things into orbits that they need to be. That's amazing. I was like. That sounds cool, man. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so we started thinking about it. So, and I think this is what you do is like you have an idea and then you start to think if it's viable or, you know, keep validating it continuously, researching, understanding it, seeing, you know, twist, you know, adjusting it a little bit. Yeah. And we ended up getting to the point where, well, the first thing you need is a spacecraft that can move around in space into the right spots. Yeah. And then we started to see that there was a market emerging because of nanosatellites yeah. where thousands of satellites are being launched. So it was really important for us as a, you know, as a capability for the world to be able to put satellites into precise orbits. Right? So big rockets yeah. go up to a spot in space, yeah. but you need to get the satellite into another spot. 
So it's sort of like an A380 goes from Sydney to LA. Yeah. And then you've got trucks, cars, vans, small planes taking people and parcels yeah. to all of the small locations in California. Yeah. yeah. So similar stuff's happening in space. Like there's so much infrastructure required up there to distribute things into the right spots. So there is an emerging market for what's called orbital transfer vehicles. I call them space courier vans. Yeah. yeah. That take some satellites, put it, you know, so take take the space courier van, put 10 satellites in it, put it in a big rocket. Big rocket flies up to low Earth orbit. Space, the courier van comes out and flies around and puts those small satellites in the correct orbits. Now, you know, I'd never thought about space until then. So they just, well, this is really interesting. You get curious, start reading, start understanding, like thinking it through. And I think timing was really interesting because the space agency emerges, Australia starts getting interested in space. There's this massive proliferation of space activities. And it's like, there is a market for space courier vans. There's now nine companies who are trying to build these things. We are the only one in Australia. Yeah, that's brilliant. Mm. I'm such a sci-fi geek. So, <laughs> if you listen to the po- previous podcast, I'm all about space. I'm obsessed with it. Um, so, I just want to ask. Moving on from space machines, it's an amazing idea, and you know, fingers crossed, we'll all be watching and <laughs> and making sure it uh, it takes off the way it needs to. You have a core philosophy. Those that are able are obligated to do mm. is that and i absolutely love that so first and foremost can you explain your philosophy and secondly is that where 11.2 has come out yeah i think you know it's it's something that's resonated in my brain for a long time around that it's sort of it's if you've got the, the mental capacity and the sort of grit and grind to go and do hard things you should go and do hard things mm. um and uh, you know, I think it's I think it's really important because if people don't tackle really hard things, and you either need to put brains and capital behind that to change the way systems work, the world will not end up where it needs to be. So mm-hmm. I think you know, and sort of like, and going back to really where it comes from, like my dad is a very bright man. Like he mm-hmm. topped the state when he was at you know the equivalent of year twelve yeah. um, in South Australia, um, and. In the end, became a school teacher, which is a very noble profession. He taught for thirty years at PAC, taught maths, and you know I meet people today where oh, your dad changed my life. So he's had significant impact. Yeah. But I, it niggles me because he's a massive environmentalist and he wants to fix the carbon problem and stuff, and he lives a very frugal, low carbon lifestyle. And I'm like, but dude, you're like you've got this amazing brain. Mm. Solve the big problem. Mm. So I think as a as a result of sort of that history, I feel really strongly about. Those who've got the capacity to go and tackle hard things should mm. go and tackle hard things and not settle for easy things. Yeah. 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 Why do you think they do settle? I'm not sure. Fear? <laughs> is it? I think fear, comfort, you know, you know, pursuit of wealth over, you know, like financial wealth over purposeful, you know, sort of satisfaction. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, pursuing purposeful things is what makes you feel you know, good and happy. Mm. I think because it's it's funny you say that story because it's literally a very topical thing for me at the moment. My old man's quite similar, but in the building and construction game, everyone I know is your old bet, your old boy's the best. Like he's had, he's had, um, he's been in the paper. People have written up, you know, because he's a construction manager for for Metric on Homes and oh. all this sort of stuff. So he, he's, he's he's been in the paper purely from a, you know. Rob Franco was the supervisor of this, amazing, yada, 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 all this sort of stuff. Uh, and and the industry knows him quite well, very well. Yet 
and he had his own business but then put family first, made the decision that I wanted to put all my time and effort into family. My mum, through her history, had uh, had some, some operations and stuff which stopped her from being able to be as agile as she could and so my dad decided, right, oh, my business can go on the side. And so that kind of... Deep down, that kind of irks me a little bit. I know that he's done the right thing, what was for him and, yeah. uh, and for us, right? And he's given me all the opportunity. But in the same token, I feel the same. Like he had, he had the ability to, to, do more. to do more. And you almost look at his life now and you talked about your dad living a frugal life. My dad's living a life where he's building chessboards or <laughs> do you know what I mean? And he's sort of now at that yeah. point where he kind of, looks through my eyes and goes oh you know you're doing you're doing okay and i'll start living my (laughs) what i was hoping to do through you and interesting yeah it's a it is a very interesting so that's why i asked what what do you think is it is it family is it situation that holds people back and it could be just circumstances yeah and i think some people you know i think you know to be honest i think my my wife would probably love me to put more of my brain power into the family but Mm. my 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 view but then that would probably be not, I'm not happy in feeling purposeful yeah, and what impact would that have? So, you know, it's like... That's where resentment... Yeah, so time is a really important... Like quality time is more important than lots of time. Mm. And I think that's the balance I'm trying to find. Yeah. Is how do you create enough really good quality time with the family so you can still be really purposefully pursuing interesting hard things? Yeah, when you're present, you're present. I mm. agree with you. If Because for me, you know, I've never missed a basketball game for my my children. Like I just refuse – I have to be there. But I know one day as the business grows more and more that, you know, these sort of things are going to come out and and, and start to haunt me. But I really really do believe that you can do both. Yes. So – and there's something something really in that, right? That's a really interesting thing. So so when you're confronted with two problems that look mutually exclusive, right? So – they're only that because you haven't thought about it hard enough to work out how you can have both. Yeah. So that saying of you can't have your cake and eat it, bullshit. Yeah. Like you just need to think it through properly. Correct. And I think as you get more experienced, I used to be the – I would prioritize a low-priority work activity because I thought it was important over my family. Mm. I don't do that. I try and get to all of the things possible with my kids. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I struggle with though in Adelaide, and it's interesting, is in Sydney the schooling system I think was designed for parents – for families where both parents worked. Yeah. In Adelaide, I'm convinced the schooling system is designed for families where they assume one parent yeah, works. Like, hey, on Tuesday next week, there's an excursion. Can you yeah. come? I'm like, give me four yeah. weeks' notice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but yeah. one week. Like, so oh, I agree. I think it's hard to do it all, but like sports games, you know, I was at my kids' scouts going up ceremony last night at 6 p.m. Yeah. You know, and I, I think you just got to go, right, unless it's super high priority work, family's got to win. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I like that. I like that. I find that hard though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit older than you. Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think, yeah. I think it, it gets. I think it gets easier. Does it? Yeah, it gets easier. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the the problem I find is I'm so passionate about what I'm doing. I love people. Really, are, I, I, yeah. didn't, I, I, I couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah, I oh, I just yeah. Half the time I feel like I'm um, I'm torn. Now moving on from that. You are a, a human being that loves to solve problems. So you can solve – maybe you and I can get off <laughs> go offline and uh, you can solve my, my family business problems. Um, what is it about solving problems, especially from like 11.2 point of view, that really makes you sing? 
Well, it's interesting. You go back to that sort of mutual exclusive, you can't have both things. 11.2 has been born out of, I guess, all of the experience that I've had Mm. up until 2017. And we didn't deliberately set out to do this. We just started talking to people about entrepreneurial methods and thinking and how to apply that to problems and finding ideas that fix those problems. So it's like, and then, you know, going all the way back to, you know, putting things on a page from Bill Doyle, my year 11 geography teacher, like when I'm confronted with a problem, I'm visually starting to try and understand the system of how it, how it works and how everything fits together mm. and what ideas have a right to be pursued to go and help solve that problem. And I think when I look back at Boodle, and it's funny, I talked to my partner about this a bit, the mistake we made was we tried to solve the industry's problem. Mm. Like, so we tried to solve the industry problem for physical retail. So we did a lot of work with shopping centers. We were trying to solve the industry's problem. We didn't solve a narrow enough problem to build a business around. And my, yeah. my partner was like, George, you're more interested in solving the industry's problem than you are in building a business. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and, but I thought my philosophy was, well, if we solve the problem, the business will come along. But you, know, you actually have to focus on building the business. So I think that was one of my big prob- mistakes yeah. I made. Is that why they say you've got to go niche? Yeah. So you so, are focusing on specifics? So, yeah. So that idea for Boodle started very small. It was like send a text, send a reminder to someone when they're near a shop that sells it. And we raised money and it got very big. We were like, oh, we could do all of this. And I think yeah. one of the key traps, of, what, yeah. one of, the key traps of, of, you know, entrepreneurs is that they, they go too big, right? Mm. You've got to solve something really specific. Mm. So the whole philosophy. But isn't it, it's kind of the whole why you're here <laughs> while we're here we'll just do this as well right <laughs> yeah there's oh you can do this with that and every time you talk to someone they're like, oh you could do that with that and then yeah. you, it gets bigger by default so when you know i love like i genuinely love ideas and working out whether or not they're worthwhile mm. right it's like idea pops into your head you start going through a mental process to see if it was a good one talk to a few people have some conversations do some research then you know you might start building something and i love that i love it because ideas make the future what the future needs to be, right? Mm. Without ideas, the future doesn't change, right? Yep, so, yep. so ideas are a critical part of life. So I was like, I, I started talking to some big companies. I was fortunate to be on the RAA board. And then after I left the RAA board, we started talking to them about this way we think about ideas. And people went, far out, you think differently. So what, what we sort of learned was that with these big problem spaces, like big complex problems, bushfire resilience, mm. massive problem space, right? Like, really expensive to solve bushfire resilience in the hills, how do you go from a big problem space to a discrete problem, which you can build an idea like idea around, build something to try and solve, and then you change the big problem space by moving, I call it big mountain, small rocks. Like you just start tackling little bits of it. Yeah. And then over time, you actually change the system. So I think a lot about, you know, we call them systemic global problems around climate change, you know, natural disaster resilience, uh, energy transition, all of these things. They're massive complex problem spaces. What we want to do at 11.2 is have a model that enables us to shift the needle on those problem spaces by identifying new ideas and testing them and seeing if they're worthwhile and have an impact on that. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Mm. Are you part of the... You wake up this morning, you open the financial review and you see net zero, net zero for carbon. Are you, are you part of the helping the businesses of the world solve I would problems? love to get yeah. into that, right? So, you know, yeah. and 11.2, like we sort of, we've been doing a branding exercise, you know, but the, the sort of thinking is 
You know, we get ahead of the world's problems. Like we want to get ahead of the world's problems with people who care. So, you know, I describe we would never as a company help someone build AI to sell more crappy rubbish retail products to people that don't need it. There are lots of people out there building AI to work out how to addict people's attention to digital devices so we can sell more to them. I find that repugnant. Yeah. It's repugnant. Like yeah. so, but you know, talking to someone about energy transition and how do we help get electric vehicles out here faster and mm. how do we transition the world to one where there's no carbon and the planet's protected, hundred percent. We want to we want to do as much of that as possible. And we attract people that have that purposeful mindset into our business. Yeah. yeah I think that's where mm. My ears pricked up when I heard about what you guys are doing. Where did eleven point two come from? The name in itself. <laughs> I guess. It's <laughs> well, right, so my business partner Raj yeah. is an aerospace engineer, yeah. and eleven point two is eleven point two kilometers per second is the velocity something has to hit to escape the gravitational pull of Earth, and it sort of the the name came out of our experience with Boodle was that unless an idea is good enough and has enough fuel to escape Earth's gravitational pull then it's not worth pursuing. So it's like, you know, you might have the best idea in the world on the launch pad, but not enough fuel. It's not going to work. You might have the worst idea with really shit tons of fuel. It might still get there. So 11.2 sort of captures this philosophy of, you know, an idea is only worthwhile pursuing if it can be launched and escape the Earth's uh, Earth's pool. And we came up, that name emerged before we started thinking about any space projects. That was just by accident. Yeah. So on that, because I remember last conversation, which stuck in my mind, and we were talking about big business because you and I both work in that corporate world from our businesses outside of this. You, you said to me, you'll never create an internal capability to uncover and validate ideas properly. Well, the big businesses won't, right? And you're pretty <laughs> blunt with that. Can you that, – that was profound for me in the sense that you're saying big business – can't do this internally they need someone else to look at this from a different lens yeah that might be confronting in some ways but i'm adamant about it and Mm. not because great people work inside these business but just the cultural setup of them Mm. is not aligned to really transformative idea thinking and validation right it's just like the immune system of a big company protects it from that and the risk profile of people and you know it's like no one wants to be the executive that tried five things that didn't work yeah so I just think organisationally and structurally it's really hard, even if you had really amazing people. And then people who are really good at coming up with uncovering crazy ideas and validating them well, they just don't really fit in these sorts yeah, of big companies. they right? almost they're get of, weeded out. They, so they're suit. mutually exclusive. So, you know, we talk in our business a lot about Navy SEALs. Um, yeah. So we like, you know, the an- analogy is like we're building a Navy SEAL squad mm-hmm. capability to uncover tech ideas right, and mm-hmm. validate them is really what we want to be brilliant at. And that is a great capability for a large organization to use in a good way. Mm. But a large organization shouldn't build their own Navy SEAL capability because the Navy SEALs don't want to work there. So that's sort of the way we Uh, think about that. Um, And I think that uh, I'm not an advocate for completely outsourcing innovation because the knowledge and experience inside these big organizations is actually really valuable. You, yeah, you're an advocate for enabling. Yeah, so there's a, an enabling augmentation model, yeah. right, where you bring in – so, you know, we, we did a lot of research when we were thinking about whether or not 11.2 could go from two people talking to a few companies into a scalable business model around how innovation works. So the models of corporate venturing, you know, outsourced innovation lab, insourced innovation lab, you know, accelerator programs, none of them have really been super successful. Mm. So our view is that there is a – definite opportunity for a different model 
about how you get the right mindset and types of people and capability working with big organizations to solve problems. Oh, I love it. Yeah. How do you train your Navy SEALs? Like, because, <laughs> you know, there's you and Raj obviously have these great minds, which, are, and not to say these people you're bringing in don't have great minds, but more the fact that you've had the experiences, I should say, you know, the, the, the failed startups, the yeah. startup after startup almost. And um, it's a really good question because mm. um, it's the it's one that we are now starting to really think through because mm. we're starting to. I think validate that what we do makes sense, and now we need to start to understand how you build out, mm. you know, teams of people that. Can yeah, you must start this. your internal training. Yeah, maybe we need to talk to you guys about that. Well, I think we can talk together <laughs> about that. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I, it's really—it's just <laughs> finding, we're trying to do the same thing, right? <laughs> finding finding the right types of people, right? Like the people with the right sort of mindset and endeavor and focus on wanting to be better all the time, and I, I think it's like. You know, the elite sports person, the SAS soldier, like the the startup founder that's really tried, like there's a sort of underlying, I just want to continuously improve and understand deeper. Yeah. And if that's the mindset of someone, to teach them some of the other stuff I think is is much easier. Yeah. So you've got to find the people that have got that in I their agree. DNA. I, yeah, absolutely. It's getting the right people in the bus mm. and, and, and actively searching for those people, creating mm. those avatars of, of type or personas that <laughs> you're, you're trying to attract. Have you ever read – I love the, the Navy SEAL analogy. Have you read the David Goggins book? No. You can't see me. I said – I'm going to use so David Goggins. It's a bit of an alpha male book, rah rah, right? But he's a Navy SEAL. Well, he tried to get into the Navy SEALs, and he's a, oh, one of the very few people that have done Hell Week three times. So oh, the wow. first two times he failed, didn't get through because one time he fractured his shin and all this stuff. Read the book; it's amazing. We actually listen to the audio book because it is it is because there's podcasts in between okay. chapters, so it's quite an interesting listen. And if you're a runner. Because he's a big runner, he's an ultra marathon runner as well. You will, you will really enjoy it. But where I'm going with this is that, from a Navy SEAL um, point of view, if you, um, I feel the same with leadership. I feel the same with everything, experience, startup, whatever it might be. If you go into the Navy SEALs and you train only the way the Navy SEALs train, then yeah, you'll be okay, right? But if you're not doing training outside of that environment if you're not continually trying to improve yourself whether it's your behavior through reading a book mm-hmm. or whether listening to a podcast or getting a mentor or getting a coach or if and let's use running if you go to a running coach and you only run laps when you go to your running coach and you don't run outside when you're at home or wake up first thing in the morning and go for a run and put extra effort into me into it you're never going to be or never excel right and i find the same thing when looking for people to hire it's when you're looking for those unicorns almost <laughs> who are I'm willing to give it all and put all that time and effort into this, yeah. into the work I'm doing. But outside, I'm doing everything in my power to get better and grow and improve. Yep. And I think it's such an important. I think it's the only way. It <laughs> is. Right, because if you haven't got that mindset, like if all you're doing is doing my work and I train during my, like you have to have the mindset of like yeah. I'm just trying to get under the hood of how to be better, mm. right? Like how do I get better and better and better at these things? You know, I voraciously you know, listen to audiobooks and podcasts yeah. and think and read. And, you know, one of my favorite ones I've read like it was called Range, which is all about, you know, how like sort of super specialization doesn't really work, right? Mm. Like, you know, I think okay, there's a great analogy in there, like Roger Federer yeah. didn't start playing tennis until he was quite old. Yeah. Yeah. Most successful tennis player yeah. ever. So yeah. this fight, if you want to be a professional tennis player, start playing tennis. It's, it's actually 
statistically and data-driven wrong. Yeah. What you want is people that have got range and they're really broad and they yeah. think and they you know traverse different professions and disciplines and yeah. ways of thinking and Oh, there's so much to love about Roger Federer. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I only took Roger Federer out of it. But you know, we go into that yeah. example before where we said family and you can do both. Like mm. Roger Federer is your perfect example, plays yeah. at the highest, absolute highest level and one of the best tennis players to have ever existed and takes his family with him everywhere. Yeah. Like Brilliant. educates him. Oh, he's, yeah. And Brilliant. just a humble human being. Yeah. And I, and I think there's one thing that I reckon a lot of people misunderstand about Navy SEAL mindset and training is that the psychological safety and the egolessness that they create is mm. a core component of the ability to operate as an elite team, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you got to have skills and strength and discipline, but then the psychological aspects of vulnerability, honesty, feedback, yeah. psychological safety, you know, getting rid of the ego and all of these things. If you don't have that, it will not work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's an ecosystem, isn't it really, mm. in your mind? <laughs> um, I'm going back to the uh, – businesses not being able to do uh, well not being able to to grow that innovation piece solely by themselves do you and you mentioned organizational culture we are a business that works on culture so that struck a chord with me when you said that because it is 100 percent true if you've got red tape that's in the way it's going to stop you from being able to get things through you need 16 signatures to get mm. something through all this sort of stuff is part of your culture when you go into businesses is that something that you identify straight away? Is that you can go? You guys are never going to achieve anything because clearly you, your culture is upside down. Look, I think that I think lots of them have great endeavors and aspirations to be able to do it themselves, and I think they start a journey mm. of like in an innovation journey. I think you know, and I use the analogy: if you asked a hundred CEOs of big companies, is innovation important? They'd all put their hand yeah. up. And yeah, if it's then a you buzzword. said, "Are you?" Are you comfortable that your innovation investment is yielding results? I think oh, I reckon yeah. you get a lot of them that are committed to – they're highly convicted on that. So I think it's clear that it's hard to find – like if there's a lot of sort of friction in the idea validation process, mm. it's hard to operate at a pace that enables you to innovate like startup founders and find new things, right? Yeah. And, and I think my business partner, Mark Ogden, talks about it. There are only two companies that are sort of rated as being long-term, innovative, successful, mm. Black & Decker and Apple. Mm. Like outside of that, the sort of analysis done by, you know, the big four consulting, most companies don't succeed at innovation. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. So, I mean, Dyson fails a lot, right? <laughs> like Dyson is – because well, Dyson, I, I love Dyson. Dyson. I love Dyson. But they had a car. Did you know about that? They were building a car. There is a podcast recently out, and I'm a Tim Ferriss fan, but he interviewed the owner or creator of Dyson who came okay, up with the yeah. cycle. It's an amazing podcast. But he, they had washing machines that fail. They had yeah. cars that fail. So um, from an innovation point of view, they're, they're, you, know, you would think they're front and center, but they have all these so other – I often use this sort of – you can't rationalize your way to a breakthrough idea. Mm. Like you just can't – like you go, oh, look, this is everything we've got. Here are the ingredients. Yeah. That's fine. That's why – a breakthrough idea emerges and then you start to post-rationalise whether or not it yeah. makes sense to pursue. And you're going to fail. If, if that's the if the only way to find a breakthrough idea is to have an idea and then post, like rationalise whether or not it makes – by default, you have lots that don't work. Mm. The, the art, I think, is to be able to validate them efficiently and effectively. So it's like you rule them out appropriately and yeah. you keep them in appropriately yeah so you don't spend too much money on bad ones and you don't throw ones that could have been good out yeah and I think the other thing that's hard inside big companies is you start on one idea and that lets you get to the second idea which lets you get to the third idea which lets you get to the fourth idea so the first three failed but mm. the fourth one which you could only get started on because of what you learned from the first three is the yeah. really good one yeah 
that doesn't fit neatly inside no. a big organisation. No, because they lose their uh, focus quite quickly. <laughs> someone, someone did say to me the other day, it's like, George, we want you to be the, the guy that makes the decision to drown the puppies. <laughs> <laughs> did, you said that last time and I was about to pull that one out, but you beat me to yeah, it. No, so it's like, drown so the it's puppies, like, I love yeah, it. That's the other thing. People like, and it's, there's no criticism on this. I think, and this is why I think that what we're doing has a right to exist is because it's really hard inside an organization to create an environment where you can drown the puppy because mm. that was my puppy. I loved that. I've put yeah. all my reputation internally on the line for it and all of these yeah. things. So it's just structurally hard to build a culture and an operating environment where it's acceptable to drown a puppy. You know, and in that, yeah. you know, I've taken $2 million of resource and two years of time out of seven people to pursue this idea and now you're stopping it. Yeah. Like, well, you know, it's very easy. Well, that's a waste of time. So mm. it's really hard to balance those two realities. Can you see it straight away when you walk in? Can you go, mm, that's not going to work? Or like, are you at that level or are you, hang on, if we tweak, tweak, so tweak, like, tweak? I don't want to be in the business of providing advice on the strategy and culture of organisations. Yeah. Other than from the lens. That's our job. Other than <laughs> from the lens of this is what we think we should be doing yeah. and if you want to a team that goes and finds, uh, uncovers ideas, tech ideas and validates them for you, this is what we need you to be doing. And I sort of use the term of an innovation engine, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like here's the part of the engine that we need to do, mm. here's the part of the engine that you guys need to do and if you want to f- uncover ideas and validate them well and build a pipeline of idea optionality that you might do something with in the future, this is how we think it needs to work. Mm. You can, you know, the, that organisation can then take that and go, oh, I think you should help them with that. You know, build a, a model that supports that engine operating. Yeah, um, yeah. We use the word ecosystem. Mm. Everything, it all, you know, the the old um, agonist antagonist. If you move something over here, something on this side is going to change. So we try to help businesses obviously work out the ecosystem and how it all works. So the forming of the business, what's the vision, yep. what's the purpose, what are we actually trying to achieve to the to the everyday flow of the business, you know, the systems, the processes, the leadership that are in place, then the feel of the business. What does the culture feel like? Are we getting along? Are we, you know, are we are we working together? Are we being encouraging? Are we yep. are we providing feedback? That sort of space. So um, they all work together, right? If process isn't in place and not working, then someone's going to complain about it, right? Mm. But then it affects the field. And if, like if they're not connected to the purpose, then it, yep. it, it doesn't line in with the process. So it all works in one big e- ecosystem. Um, I want to – I wouldn't mind touching back – I want to go back to the Eddie Marbo. Yep. Right. Because I think what that did do – and correct me if I'm wrong – it gave you this really um, culturally diverse – opinion uh view not opinion a view of of the way we should work right Mm. um which is amazing so uh, and everything that you're doing in that space thank you uh how do we how do we get more people in the innovation world that reflects the diversity of the overall ecosystem well that's a good question Look, I think you have to be deliberate about it, right? Mm. So, you know, I think that we need to, you know, provide pathways and encourage um, mm. more people to come into that world. Um, and I don't think we're doing a very good job of it at the moment, collectively as an organised, as, as a society. Yeah. Right? And I think there's friction to it. So, um, you know, I, I don't know what the right answer to that question is. Because mm. mm. I, I don't know if you, you've listened to the Terry Swift yeah. podcast. He said Australia uh, – mm. 
are as innovative as bad as innovative as they think they're not racist, right? So, I did remember. I was listening to that podcast when I was talking about it. I was like, "Well, that's a that's a good one." Yeah, it's brilliant, and yeah. it, it's true because I, you're you're right. I don't know. I think well, that what that comment does is exactly what we're talking about. Is what can we do? Yeah, we both work in in these worlds where we're we're working with culture and leadership teams. You're working from innovation and strategic teams on, on, on ideas. How do we solve that problem, right? What what is that something that can be solved now, or is it you know, or is it the the mountain and the rocks piece where we start? <laughs> I, with a- I think it's a you know systemic problem mm. that has to be changed over a long period of time. There's absolutely there's no magic bullet for it. Yeah, and I think that the world is so different. The world that my kids are growing up in, in relation to sexism, racism sort of all of these sorts of topics is incredibly different to the world we grew up in. Mm. So, like, I grew up in a schooling environment where, you know, there was just, like, you know, the Indigenous people were not talked about the way they are today. Like, there was no there was no raps. There was no welcome to countries. There was mm. – none of these things were being done in any way, shape or form. Now, but that's just normal. Like, our kids just see that as, as a normal thing. You know, my kids watch women play football. They watch women play cricket. Like I remember the other day someone said to one of my kids, why are you watching women play football? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, like, mm. like an older person was like, thought it was weird. Mm. And my kids just said, well, this is normal, right? This is yeah. the world we live in. So I think, yeah. I think the change is happening. Yeah, but right. I think we need to be deliberate about it. So I think there's still that, this requirement to be deliberate about making sure that we have diverse teams and we have diverse thought. And all of the evidence points to the fact that you actually do a better job. Like mm. things work better when you have diverse perspectives and opinions. Yeah. Age diversity, you know, race diversity, thinking mindset diverse, like all of the types of diversity that you want. And I think one of the interesting learnings um, when I joined the board of the RAA, so I've never been on a board of a large organisation like that, was that that focus on diversity and the need to think about diversity broadly Right, diversity of thinking style, diversity of background, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of sexuality, all of these layers mm. need to be considered in the way that you're thinking through how you're running these organisations. You know, that wasn't happening five, ten years ago. No. So no. I think the world is changing is into ch- a better place, but I think we're way behind. Like I've mm. worked with a guy who spent a lot of time in America and, you know, the inherent underlying sexism and racism in this country, he's like, wow, it's just like America's miles ahead. In, mm. in the progressive America, like he was from Seattle. Yeah. And I, I think he's right. You know? Can I ask, and this might be a very naive question and a bit of a dead-end question, but is, do, you, do you feel that the um, the population of America makes it a little easier? I mean, with 20-odd million here to 320-odd million over there, like do you feel – Probably. Yeah. There's just a lot more diversity there. Yeah. You know? yeah, I, Correct. I, yeah. I remember growing up thinking, you know, they always talked about how multicultural Australia was when yeah. I was young. And yeah, you yeah. had this view that this yeah. is a really multicultural country. Yeah. And mate, we are so far from it. Like, yeah. I remember the first time I went to London, I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's multicultural. Yeah. Like, America, yeah, New York, multicultural. Yeah. We're not that multicultural. Yeah, we're trying to pretend mm. to be something. Yeah. Like not. Do you, uh, so, on this, are you working with businesses on solving this problem? You talk about bushfires and economic and all this sort of stuff. You're not, you're not, not, not yet. And you know, our focus. You know, we we're in the business of uncovering and validating tech ideas, right? Mm. So you know, we are very focused on tech ideas. Yeah, okay. If tech can help solve systemic problems, we're super keen. Yeah, I'll give okay. it, I'm deeply passionate about the impact of digital devices on young kids' brains. Like, I mm. think it's a an emerging 
real problem, like like we think cigarettes are crazy today. Yeah. You know, in 20 years' time we'll go, what the hell were we all doing giving kids these devices? Mm. Um, I'm very – like so tech tech that helps solve problems of that nature, you yeah. know, you know if, you, if technology could help solve that, it would be really interesting. I'd love to think about that because – well, that's cool. Oh, you've just uncovered a can of worms there. Because I think China didn't China have just come out and they're restricting time on children and yep. their devices. Yep, they it? are controlling controlling the amount of time that people can spend playing games in China. Is that is that through an app or something? How well, because you know they have such strong centralized control of yeah. the digital infrastructure, they're able to limit that. They have to put a credential in to get access to play a game. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that that takes it to an extreme. Mm. What do you think we can do as parents to manage the hours that are spent? Oh, look, it is such a nefariously complex problem. Mm. You know, we talk about it uh, on a governing school council I'm on and, you know, one of the council members made a great observation that, look, it's the adults that are addicted to the technology more than the kids because it's like a digital pacifier that makes them not have to spend so much energy parenting. So, you know, <laughs> I, it's, so it's a fair comment. I think that edu- Mind you, I do like playing games though, like because I grew up as a gamer when I was a kid. So, and you know, I think that the games we played when we were kids, like I had Oil Panic and Donkey Kong, yes. like you know, they weren't rippers, they weren't. That, so, it's like you know, your mobile phone and your yeah. computer is connected to a supercomputer yeah. designed to addict you to provide attention, right? So, yeah. I think there's different categories of games and digital activities, mm. it's the ones where there is a, a desire to addict your attention i mean it blows my mind that people use tiktok i mean i just i can't understand it because it is a chinese company with chinese communist party links that is designed to suck up your biometric data and the environment that you're in so they've got data about where you are what situation you're in all of your facial expressions and everything and it's designed to exploit psychological weakness to maximize the time you spend on it now, do, when you explain it like that, does that sound like a good thing to give no. to a twelve-year-old? No, right. That's no, crazy. I thought because that was there was a big thing that TikTok was no good and all this sort of stuff that you know Big Brother is watching, so to speak. But then they came out and said, "No, no, it's all good." The Australian government or some something. No, 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 no. It is not good. <laughs> it's like genuine. Like it's just, it's not good. Like mm. the only way these companies make money is the exploitation of the data they get from you. And their entire objective is to get more of your time, attention, mm. and more of your data so they can monetize it. So, you know, we used to play computer games. Mm. There was no supercomputer on the other side trying to addict us to play them more. No, they were true. just fun computer games. Yeah, Today, your kids are playing computer games and there's underlying gaming mechanics and addictive algorithms and there's yeah. an AI that's trying to learn individually on which child, how they respond to get more time from them. Yeah. It is so – and these poor little kids' brains are just – designed to adapt to that so they're just we're just teaching kids to be addicted and there's emerging evidence and sort of scientific research around we are training addictiveness in our kids Mm. which means that as they get older they are more easily addicted to opioids and all of these sorts of things so there's there's quite a big thesis emerging that there's this massive addiction wave coming as this cohort of kids gets into the age where they are you know they have access to alcohol and drugs Great. I think that's already in place. <laughs> Again, I listened to another podcast recently. We uh, they were talking about you know using America as an example, just purely by way of numbers. They were saying something like sixty percent of Americans are addicted to opioids or have prescription to opioids. 
60 crazy yeah that's 100 yeah what 180 million people it's so you know i often think about this because i like thinking about a lot um but it if you just hypothetical thought experiment if you're an alien intelligent observing the planet from afar watching you're driving by watching what we're doing we'd be like how the hell are they getting stupider? Yeah, like, like literally, yeah. we yeah. are getting stupider <laughs> as an org, like as the the collective wisdom of society. I think is going yeah. backward. We're relying less on science now than we used to. Like in 1950, there was a there was a pandemic. Mm. There was a flu pandemic in the 1950s. Mm. Like, mate, people just they built they got a vaccine. Everyone got vaccinated. They dealt with it very sensibly. Like, we are worse at dealing with pandemics today mm. than we were in the 50s. Like, really? Like, yeah. And I mean, my view is that it's all social media, right? Social media had, yeah. is the evil, evil thing that stops us progressing as a society. Mm. It, it's one good well, – it's good for one thing from a connective point of view, but then the addiction and everything else that comes in and the rumour mill. It's, it creates echo chambers where yeah. people get stuck in like this world where like they're not quite – it's not fact. Like, And this is – so, you know – 30 years ago, it was very easy to understand what the media was telling everyone Correct. because there was papers and TVs. And like, so you could understand what the media – now there's individualized AI-generated content that you will never see yeah. and I will never see, the regulator will never see, so you don't know what people are seeing. Yeah. So it's really – it's a very, very – And you only see what you're interested in, right? It just yeah. gives you more of the same story. So those who are anti-vax will see more anti-vax stories. Yeah. So, I mean, so the two that like, – you know – Climate change, the impact of digital technology on our brains, mm. they're the two things. That, and, and the impact of digital technology on how society works. Yeah. Those two things niggle my brain. Yeah, it is, it is very interesting. I, I think, you know, when we talk about uh, where we are as a society and, you know, loneliness and belonging is, is um, rife at the moment, especially in a world where, you know, we're told to keep distance and, and stay at home and all the bar. I think today is the or yesterday was a record the world record for most days locked down by a state but in Victoria, I think oh my something God. like that. Man, yeah. I really feel for them. Yeah. It would be really difficult. So, so you think about loneliness. And then when you talk about, you know, social media and the impact that it's having where people can read stories and, and almost feel part of something, right? Feel part uh, yeah. uh, feel like they're against the new world order or whatever <laughs> they're gonna call it like. Um, that really, I believe, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but is just a, a cry for attention. It's a, it's it's something that's sort of um, it's it's trying to push away their other issues in life and bring it up and be part of something and and, and give. And so you can kind of see why it happens because they're being part of this new way of thinking and they're fighting against the government and, yeah, you know, we're part of this different crowd and everyone else is different. But what's going to be interesting is in five years' time what happens Mm. to their way of thinking. Is this just going to keep going with everything? And so that's the concerning bit for me because it doesn't – it starts with vaccines and it starts with lockdowns and it starts with conspiracies and, Mm. you know, QAnon and all this sort of stuff and then – I can't see this turning around, which for me, you know, you talk about aliens driving past. It is, uh, <laughs> it's quite a scary thought yeah. knowing that we 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 are going in a in the wrong direction. In so yeah, I, you know, I'm a great optimist, right? Mm. So like my, my I'm an optimist, and 
my view is that we will start to organize and understand like we did with cigarettes. Like yeah. we did, like we start to get our yeah, like good. we respond to what's happening. And you know, I think we're entering an interesting age of the, you know, the philanthropic billionaires actually deploying their vast resources for good. You know, mm. we we do a little bit of work with the Mindaroo Foundation um on fire and flood stuff. Like yeah. the amount of money that some of these people in the world, you know, proper billionaires like, you know, the Cannon Brookses, the Farquhars, the, you know, the, the Twiggy Forest in Australia, and then over, they are putting most of their money behind solving these world systemic problems, mm. right? So you're starting to see I a shift from like government dealing with that yeah. to actually the private sector will start to get more involved in solving these problems with philanthropic investment. Yeah. Well, Which excites back. me. I, like, I think oh, that's absolutely. exciting and good. Well, it goes to the core of giving. I think those mm. who... It was funny because in in the podcast that uh, I was interviewed recently, uh, you know, as part of our fiftieth special, um, one of what well, one of the questions was, you know, what's some of the learnings that you've taken away? And 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 you know, you look at the wall there with the photos of people who've been in in, in the podcast. What I've learned is that really everyone who's playing at the top of the game, and you know. I've, majority of people are all in South Australia based, but they're playing at the top of the game, playing, you know, people like yourself, entrepreneurs, thinking differently, always looking to give, always looking to give back. Mm. How do we improve? How do we uh, how do we add to society? How do we solve problems that's going to be better for humanity? I've yet to have someone in this room, and maybe it's just by choice of the people I'm picking, but I've yet to have someone in this room who has any other way of thinking it's always about how do i give how do mm. i give and um it is it is quite frustrating because you know we know a few of the people sitting up quite high in the world and and they're they're thinking the same thing but this constant push of you know the government is against us or they're against 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 it is it, 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 that, that narrative blows my mind like mm. people, like anyway, I, I like to think about it like this there's people about conspiracy theories yeah. that the government's involved in if you've ever actually worked in or with government, the concept that they could run a conspiracy yeah. is absolutely I, implausible. It's very funny because I use the exact same. <laughs> it is important. <laughs> and then the concept that multiple governments get together yeah. and run a conspiracy, it's just like, give me, like, seriously? Yeah. yeah. Like, it, how do you keep a secret like that? Like, like I just uh, don't, you uh, know, maybe, maybe in a totalitarian state where there's real controls, but not in a democracy. I just think it's implausible. Oh, look, it's funny because 100%, I know. There are people within government that I know and follow on social media who are in the anti-vax group, right? So you think, and they're the ones against the government. You're working for the government. I cannot figure it out. So yeah, it's a bit strange. Look, we've digressed. We've gone down a world that uh, I thought that would happen. We're yeah, just here wandering we around. Did, we did. We mentioned that that was going to. But we, we are coming to sort of the hour and a half, Mark, I think. Really? Has it already yeah. been that yeah. long, mate? Yeah. I feel like I could talk for another three hours. I know. I did say to Gabe, I said, you watch, this could go for a couple of hours, this one. So, But I'm conscious of your time because we've only got a certain amount of time in your diary books. Uh, we, we end up we end the podcast with uh, what we call quick fire questions. They Ooh. are never quick fire. Does that mean I have to answer them quickly? No. Well, <laughs> well it's kind of well, what's the first thing that comes to your head. Yeah. But feel free to dabble because I'll, I'll ask more questions anyway but we're big readers here yep you've mentioned a few books range was one of the yep. books that you mentioned earlier what are you reading right now right now mm. extreme ownership oh jocko jocko willink yeah. so that's why you got the Good. navy seal yeah <laughs> that's another alpha yeah. sort of but if there's that you've got the the navy seal thing in your head at the moment so yeah, yeah and look at i just love the philosophy mm. of extreme ownership right mm. like 
like the buck stops with you, right? Like yeah. just take like the only thing that you are in charge of in life, like mm. I very like is how I respond. Yeah. How I take responsibility and accountability. Yeah. I'm in charge of that 100. percent mm. Got to embrace that, right? Yeah, so. I agree. I'm really interested in diving into that sort of extreme ownership concept. I'm only probably a third of the way through it at the moment, but, yeah, but it's interesting. Right. It it's is. good. I have this conversation a lot with people and they say, oh, that person, well, I'm, you know, it's nine o'clock or I'm two hours into the day and I'm already pissed off. It's like, well, that's on you, right? That's on you. Oh, so, such and such pissed me off. No, no, no. Your expectation of such and such. So, is what's pissed you off, not them. Correct. So right? there's a really interesting thing in <laughs> yeah. here because, you know, I remember reading some science, like I, I read New Scientist and Scientific American or something. I'm stuff, the same, yeah. And, but there was this, it's like your subconscious mind has no context. Yeah. So if you say, I've got a million things to do, your subconscious mind goes, oh my God, I've got a million yeah. things to do. So Anxiety if, you're, if you're like external narrative, what you're saying to people in your internal one is, oh, I'm tired, I'm grumpy. Mm. What the hell are you going to be? Mm. If you're feeling a bit tired and grumpy and someone says, how are you? Oh, best ever, wonderful, feeling great. Yeah. You might be sort of a little bit not that, but you're telling yourself. And yeah. that pushes you in a positive it does, direction. 100%. Now, you, can I, can I, the can I thought, right? tell you about the book I've just finished though? No, yes. Well, that was going to be my next question, but yes. <laughs> Go so for it. I've just finished reading a book called The Politics of Doom. Oh, wow. By a guy called Niall Ferguson, who's a historian, really mm-hmm. good historian. And it, it, he wrote it whilst in lockdown in response to the pandemic. Mm. And, you know, you, you reflect on what's going on now about like how we've been so stupid. Like it is so interesting yeah. about how the politics of doom and how we deal with these disasters and pandemics and things through all of history oh. and just sort of the craziness that's going on right now about how we deal with it. So if, you, if you're really fascinated yeah. to understand. So it's a hu- like based on like human behaviour? Yeah, it's a lot of it. History, human behaviour, like how, you know, society responds to these big disasters, whether yeah, they be great. man-made and how those disasters emerge. And it's, you know, it's always human factors in the end. Like most disasters are a result of how humans respond and society responds, not as a result of a virus or an yeah. earthquake. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's good, I man. Mean, you like it. I'll, I'll get on to it. Do you listen to any other podcasts? Oh, look, I, I listen to No Limitations oh, uh, by Blenheim Partners. Yeah, yeah. So that's a Blenheim Partners is an executive recruitment firm. They're another Adelaide? No, I think, no. They're, I think they're Sydney-based. Sydney-based. Um, so they get like, you know, leaders, Australian leaders, like CEOs, chairs, that sort of level of people to come in and talk about their lives. I find that's a really interesting podcast. Yeah, it's similar yeah. to this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should go on that. The other well, one I do, listen, I do listen to Ducks Get Cold. Ducks don't get cold feet. The John Paul Drake John Paul Drake. Now I'm going to give this. We've got to get John Paul on this podcast. That's my commitment to you, man. I'm on it, John Paul. Well, you've got a few. John Paul, this is a reach out to you. You've got to come on this podcast, man. I'm I'm expecting you to share this to him, (laughs) which is great. Beautiful. Uh, Yeah, he's got. He's got. I like his. He's pretty blunt. His approach, which I like. Yeah. No I, bull- I like no, I no bullshit approach. No bullshit. You know, I love the way he called out the hoarders last year. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Yes. You know, yeah. that sort of built a platform for him. But he's he's a really yeah. good guy. And he's got a little tick next to his name. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a LinkedIn influencer. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> brilliant. What's now? This is an Oprah Winfrey qu- uh, question, mm-hmm. and Michelle asked this to me uh, in one of the previous or the one where she interviewed me, and I thought actually I'm going to weave this one way into it. Um, so, what is one lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. One lesson that's taken me the longest to learn. Um, I still think I'm learning it right, and you know, it's it's just to be calm 
and mindful in how you respond to situations, mm. right? And just to have proper, you know, is it Victor Hugo had a quote, you know, the, the, the gap between stimulus and response yeah. and just being in charge Very, of that yeah, time, right? You know, I think that's the – it's a lesson that I'm not good at. And, the other, and that sort of weaves into I have a real sense of injustice when I feel like an injustice is done, particularly a power asymmetry injustice when mm. a powerful – powerful organization inflicts injustice on a, someone with a lot less power yeah it just triggers me mm. <laughs> and so i'm not in charge of that like I, that's my lesson i need to learn i need to be more in control and in charge of my response yeah. in those situations yeah the power the the in between stimulus and response yeah. there's a gap and yeah. in that gap is choice okay that's it that's it yeah i, I love that sentiment yeah. so it's like sort of i aspire to mastering that um, yeah, but it's a that. lesson that's really hard to learn i think that you know, it serves all people if they can do it well. Oh, I don't think we've got – I don't. yeah, I think that's a lifelong <laughs> journey, that one there. If you could have three people over for dinner, who would they be? Wow, you know, that's a good question. Three people over – I've been pondering that one since mm. I heard that question asked of Terry and I can't wrap my brain around exactly <laughs> who it would be. Um, look, ah, look. Bill Gates fascinates me. Yeah. So, you know, I would love to, you know, spend some time understanding the brain of Bill Gates would be mm. interesting to ask some questions. Do they have to be alive? No. No? no. Um, oh, who else would it be? Um, you know, Winston Churchill. Mm. Wouldn't mind understanding the brain that was that was Winston Churchill. Mm. Um, and I'm assuming my wife's going to be at dinner with me anyway. So do yeah, I get- we'll, 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 get, we'll give you a fourth person <laughs> <in> there. <that's> why. <laughs> I'm sure she'd be interested in having Absolutely. having a chat with some of those yeah. people. You've Who got a few. Ex- you've got a few extra points there. <laughs> you know, I picked that up from yeah, you, Terry. You, Terry, Terry. I know. Do you know I never thought about that? John, <laughs> oh, my wife. Well, I just think you assume right. that your wife's at dinner with you anyway yeah, because well, she's yeah. always at she's dinner with me. Always hanging off the side. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the other person that I think would be really interesting would be Eddie Marbo. Ah, oh, yes. You know, where, where some because that really, really started a lot of thinking for me. Mm. So that would be great. What about Bill? Mm? Bill. Bill Doyle. Oh, yeah. God, that's a good one. I would love to, you know, no, yeah, you've got me there. I yeah. would love to have dinner with him yeah. and be able to articulate to him the impact that he had on my life yeah. would be a true privilege and pleasure. Yeah. Mm. yeah. A good one to get back. What is some of the best advice that you have? that you've received best advice i've received well i mean other than the bill um, yeah no i think that you know it's an interesting piece of advice you know in in the business world you know and i think in all walks of life actually in all relationships you know you have to have relationships with people you know to get anything done whether it's family friends work relationships driver and if you focus on the things that are positive and you like about people Mm -hmm. and not the things that you don't it's just much easier to have a good relationship with yeah. them. Yeah. Right? So it's like a choice to focus on what you like about people, mm. not what you don't like about people. Yeah, 100%. I, uh, I, I got given I – I was getting some coaching and I remember my coach at the time said to me, he goes – because I was telling him about someone who was annoying me and frustrated and this person's frustrating me. I'm finding it really hard. And this is years ago. This is – before my business started so no one in the business thinks it's them um and and i remember he turned around and he said to me do is that person giving it their best right and uh, and 
And I said, yes, I think they are. And he goes, well, it's really hard to be angry at someone who's giving, giving, their it, best. giving it their best. <laughs> well, giving it the best with what they've got as yep. well is probably another key element to that. And he goes, and if, the, if they are giving their best and you don't believe that they're to the standard, then there's an opportunity for you to put your coaching hat on mm. in that space and help educate and help grow and help them see a different perspective. Yep. I thought it was brilliant. And, I've, and I, I completely agree. There's something I read, I can't remember what it was, but 99.9% of people are doing the best they can with the tools they've currently got. 100%. Yeah, right? And agreed. so therefore it's like help them with more tools. I think that's a Brene Brown thing too. It, that, I, think, <laughs> I love Brene yeah, Brown. Yeah, it is. Right. If you had access to a time machine, mm-hmm. where would you go? Oh man, geez, that's a good <clears throat> question. I'm just, I'd have to go to the future, right? Like, yeah, I, I'm I just, with I just you. want yes. to know, mate. Like, can I knew, you put me, you put me three or four hundred yeah. years in the future? I want to see what happens, yeah. man. Like, I've got all my thinking, and my thoughts. I'm, uh, yeah, take me to the future. Yeah, you and me are kindred in this space. <laughs> Everyone says go back. I'm no, like, what you <laughs> not a million years. Yeah, future. Yeah. yeah, I can read about the past. Yeah. I can't. I don't know what the future holds. Yeah, no, no, I'm fascinated with it. Yeah, brilliant. Is there a particular Point, like you said, three, four hundred years. What do you hope to see in that time? Oh, look, I, you know, I, I would love to see some genuine breakthroughs in science that mm. we currently don't think are possible. And you know, I, I have a really firm view. I, I sort of subscribe to the view that everything is possible. We just don't yet know how. Mm. Um, so you know, go back to like, and a truism of science is that we generally disprove that which we thought was fact over time. Yeah. So it's like. You know, maybe we've solved time travel in three or four hundred years. Maybe we've solved, well, that's you know, how you, that's you know, how you, you, got there, right? you know, maybe we've solved. <laughs> maybe we understand there's multiple universes and we can move yeah. between them. Like, I don't know. Like, I would love to see where we get. Yeah, oh, I love the idea of the infinite universe. Yeah, like there's an infinite number of universes. Yeah. you know. So, so right now, somewhere else in another universe, they're having this same conversation yeah. with one word different. Correct. Right. You know, and then the next, you know, like yeah. that just <laughs> blows. <laughs> Yeah, like that so every time on. there's a binary choice between one and naught, every permutation of everything is existing in a different parallel universe. Yeah. I sort of think that that might be possible. I think so too. We're <laughs> going. <This> is, <laughs> we got to we we talk for I two think, hours. I think that. we need to have a couple of wines with this one. <laughs> uh, if you had one superhero power, what would it be? Oh, look. I just reckon I would love to be able to remain calm no matter what is going on. <laughs> it's a superpower. <laughs> yeah. But you know, like you know, you know, it's like having some. I've got a very spirit, spirited yeah. seven-year-old, and like seriously, like I, I not more than a day or two goes past. But geez, I wish I was calm at yeah. that moment. So you know, I'd be like calmness no matter what's happening. Yeah, would be well, a great stim- superpower. There's your stimulus response yeah. thing right there. It's coming back. <laughs> We're still learning. Right, my favorite. What's your best dad joke? <laughs> <laughs> I am terrible with jokes. So the the one we roll with my kids is knock knock. Who's there? Europe. You're harsh. <laughs> <laughs> You're a poo. <laughs> that one gets rolled out pretty frequently in our family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I heard it. I did up. I did up poo. Same thing. Uh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Hey, look, mate, can, we, okay, can, you, can you give me one more minute? There's right, something go. I forgot to talk about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So as part of our Space Machines company, it's a plug, we are yeah, running a go. mission to the moon called Lunar Ascent. It's, its ambition is to be the first Australian mission to the moon. So everyone, you know, most people remember the moment we won the America's Cup. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Australian <laughs> boat, Australian design, Australian crew, we won the America's Cup. Our ambition in 2024 is to be the first group of organizations to go from australia on an australian rocket with an australian spacecraft and take australian satellites and put them in orbit around the moon and we want to use that as a way to inspire the nation and the indigenous community and connect it all together in a way where we all appreciate the importance of space to the future oh that's amazing Mm. how come we didn't touch on that i'm not sure 
Oh, <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. You, I'll come we'll back. Do next podcast. Yeah, I'll come. We could, spe- we could do a podcast on that one topic. Yeah, our, we're probably going to go create our own podcast show <laughs> after this. No, brilliant. Thank you very awesome. much, George. That's that's great. Actually, the one question was going to be, as I finish off, what does the future look like for you? But it sounds like you've got a pretty... Look, mate, if I can, if I can get the balance right of, of managing purposeful, fun projects mm. and find a way to do as many of them as possible to affect change on as many systems that need to be changed as possible and, and get the family, you know, bring up an a awesome family paradigm and dynamic where we have a really happy family and build, you know, raise purposeful, good kids, that would fill me with delight. Brilliant. I love it. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything you're doing in the in the uh, in the world of entrepreneurship, in the world of uh, space, business, innovation, the whole whole sort of piece. Uh, oh. Keep up the good work, mate. And um, we'll follow, can we follow you on LinkedIn, George? Freeney? George Freeney, LinkedIn. I'm actually interesting fact the only George Freeney on planet Earth. There are oh, no really? other people with that name. Have you, um, and you've done yeah, that recently. I've, I've done so, yeah. LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever you find a George Friend, it's highly likely to be me. Um, yeah, please so follow me. So free knee, but with one E. F-R-E-N-E-Y. <laughs> there you go. Brilliant. Thanks, Thanks again, mate. George. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page, where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.